0: I didn't vote to overturn an election. And I will not be lectured by people who did about partisanship.
1: The only appropriate response to Jim Jordan. That's Congressman Jerry Connolly. Good work, sir.
2: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs.
1: From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, AKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO on Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, in Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and Coast to Coast and Around the Globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdon Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the Globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at nicolesandler.com, stepping in to give Brad and Desi a day off because it's Desi's birthday. And sometimes you just need to celebrate. So we got a lot of news to cover. We have history to talk about today as well. Our guest later on in the program is the author of a book called You never forget your first. Now get your mind out of the gutter because it is a biography of George Washington written by a woman bringing us into uh, the modern times and away from the stodginess of presidential biographies. Alexis Coe joins us in the final segment of the program today. But boy, do we have a lot of news to get to. So let's begin. It's now been 50 days since the insurrection at the Capitol. And there hasn't been a single press conference, interview, or briefing from the Capitol Police. Until now. It all changed Thursday, when acting U.S. Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman testified at a House hearing. Pittman said that the intelligence given to the Capitol Police indicated that there would be a potentially dangerous rally at the Capitol that day. But what unfolded was far more massive and violent than anyone could have ever imagined. I didn't get a briefing and I imagined it. (laughs) I knew what was going to happen. Anyway, here's a little bit of what the new acting U.S. Capitol Police chief had to say.
3: Since the 6th, it has been suggested that the department was either ignorant of or ignored critical intelligence that indicated that an attack of the magnitude that we experienced on January 6th would occur. The department was not ignorant of intelligence indicating an attack of the size and scale we encountered on the 6th. There was no such intelligence. Although we knew the likelihood for violence by extremists, no credible threat indicated that tens of thousands would attack the US Capitol.
1: You know, the Senate had a hearing On Tuesday, and before they began the testimony, it was the former chief of the Capitol Police and the former sergeants at arms of both the House and Senate, all three of whom were, well, let go after the insurrection. Before they began, Amy Klobuchar, who was the chair of one of the committees that was holding this this hearing, introduced Captain Carnesha Mendoza, a captain in the Capitol Police Department, so we could hear her story she was far more compelling.
4: It was approximately 1.30 in the afternoon. I was home eating with my 10 year old, spending time with him before what I knew would be a long day. When a fellow captain contacted me and told me things were bad and that I needed to respond in. I literally dropped everything to respond to work that day early. I arrived within 15 minutes and I contacted dispatch to ask her what active scenes we had. I was advised things were pretty bad. I asked where assistance was needed and was advised of six active scenes. There was an explosive device at the Democratic National Committee building, a second explosive device at the Republican National Committee building, and large hostile groups at different locations outside the Capitol building. I advised the dispatcher I would respond to the DNC since that building was closest to where I was at the time. En route, I heard officers at the Capitol building calling for immediate assistance, so I proceeded past the DNC to the Capitol. Captain as I arrived to Mendoza, the east front plaza of, of the, the Capitol, I heard Capital an officer Police yell there was department. a breach at the we'll rotunda door, and I heard various officers calling of for assistance in at the multiple locations throughout the building. As the Many of the doors to the building were not accessible to the size of the crowd. Gone. I was I able hope. to enter a lower-level door with the assistance of a Capitol officer officer. Once inside the memorial door, I immediately noticed a large crowd of possibly 200 rioters yelling in front of me. Since I was alone, I turned to go back so I could enter another door. But within the few seconds, it took me to walk back to the door I entered. There were already countless rioters outside the building banging on the door. I had no choice but to proceed through the violent crowd in the building. I made my way through the crowd by yelling and pushing people out of my way until I saw Capitol Police Civil Disturbance Unit in riot gear in the hallway. They were holding the hallway to keep rioters from penetrating deeper into the building. I immediately jumped in line with them to assist with holding the crowd of rioters. At some point, my right arm got wedged between rioters and the railing along the wall. A CDU sergeant pulled my right arm free, and had he not, I'm certain it would have been broken. Shortly after that, an officer was pushed and fell to the floor. I assisted the officer to a safer location and got back in line. At some point, the crowd breached the line officers worked so hard to maintain. Civil disturbance units began to redeploy to keep rioters from accessing other areas of the building. I proceeded to the rotunda where I noticed a heavy smoke-like residue and smelled what I believed to be military-grade CS gas, a familiar smell. It was mixed with fire extinguisher spray deployed by rioters. The rioters continued to deploy CS into the rotunda. Officers received a lot of gas exposure, which is worse inside the building than outside because there's nowhere for it to go. I received chemical burns to my face that still have not healed to this day. I witnessed officers being knocked to the ground and hit with various objects that were thrown by rioters. Um, I was unable to determine exactly what those objects were. I immediately assumed command in the rotunda and called for additional assets. Officers began to push the crowd out the door After a couple hours, officers cleared the rotunda, but had to physically hold the door closed because it had been broken by the rioters. Officers begged me for relief as they were unsure how long they could physically hold the door closed, with the crowd continually banging on the outside of the door, attempting to gain reentry. Eventually, officers were able to secure the door with furniture and other objects. I'm proud of the officers I worked with on January 6th. They fought extremely hard. I know some said the battle lasted three hours, but according to my Fitbit, I was in the exercise zone for four hours and nine minutes, and many officers were in the fight even before I arrived. I'm extremely proud of the United States Capitol Police. I'm especially proud of the officers who are the backbone of this agency and carry out day-to-day operations. I know with teamwork we can move forward. The night of January 7th into the very early morning hours of my birthday, January 8th, I spent at the hospital comforting the family of our fallen officer and met with the medical examiner's office prior to working with fellow officers to facilitate a motorcade to transport Officer Sicknick from the hospital. Of the multitude of events I've worked in my nearly 19-year career in the department, this was by far the worst of the worst. We could have had 10 times the amount of people working with us, and I still believe the battle would have been just as devastating. As an American and as an Army veteran, it's sad to see us attacked by our fellow citizens. I'm sad to see the unnecessary loss of life. I'm sad to see the impact this has had on Capitol Police officers. And I'm sad to see the impact this has had on our agency and on our country. Captain
1: Carnesha Mendoza, a captain in the Capitol Police Department. We'll be hearing a lot more of this kind of testimony in the coming weeks and months as the 1-6 Commission gets going, I hope. Well, it is cabinet confirmation season and some of Biden's nominees are having an easier go of it than others. Like, well, Neera Tandon. She's Joe Biden's choice to lead the Office of Management and Budget. Democrats on Wednesday delayed her scheduled confirmation vote. And Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is reportedly encouraging his members to hold the line against Tandon's confirmation. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain said on MSNBC Wednesday night that, quote, we're fighting our guts out to get her confirmed. But it looks like it's going to be a tough fight, likely made more difficult on Wednesday when a reporter from The Washington Post, Seung Min Kim, showed Lisa Murkowski that she wasn't exempt from Tandon's Twitter attacks. Murkowski is one of the few Senate Republican reliable swing votes who could break with the rest of the party. But the offending tweet, one that for some reason Tandon didn't erase, was sent in November of 2017. Murkowski had praised her party's move to cut corporate taxes, tweeting that it would enable U.S. companies to better compete. Tandon responded via Twitter, quote, "'No offense, but this sounds like you're high on your own supply.'" you know we know and everyone knows this is all garbage just stop murkowski read the tweet and responded by saying hi on my own supply that's interesting should i ask her my own supply of what murkowski said she hasn't yet decided how she'll vote saying quote see that goes to show how much homework i still have to do on her if i didn't even know that she had sent out a tweet about me now some of biden's other cabinet picks are finally having their hearings and votes are taking place too. Tom Vilsack and Linda Thomas-Greenfield were sworn in on Wednesday as Secretary of Agriculture and UN Ambassador, respectively. Former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm was confirmed as Energy Secretary on Thursday. Hearings for Deb Haaland for Interior Secretary and Javier Becerra for Secretary of Health and Human Services have been kinda rocky as the nominees of color seem to be under extra scrutiny. Senator Joe Manchin, you know, the Democrat from West Virginia, did finally admit on Wednesday that he will be a yes vote on Deb Haaland, making her very likely to be confirmed as Interior Secretary and the first Native American in U.S. history to hold a cabinet post. So, That $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill is headed to a House floor vote as early as Friday. Polling shows overwhelming support, a new Quinnipiac poll finding that seven in 10 Americans support it. Yet, Republicans are still set to oppose the bill, arguing against legislation intended to help speed the delivery of vaccines, send direct payments to people in need, extend key pandemic unemployment programs, provide aid to struggling small business owners, and dedicate nearly $130 billion for our K-12 through schools to reopen. You know, to help people. What they're waiting for is the Senate parliamentarian. Her name is Elizabeth McDonough. We're just waiting on her decision as to whether the $15 minimum wage provision can be included in a bill using reconciliation. The parliamentarian, by the way, is a legal advisor to the Senate. She interprets the body's rules And procedures. Her ruling will have nothing to do with the merit of the bill, just whether or not, under the Senate rules, it can be included in a bill that will pass using reconciliation. In addition to everything I've already told you about, there was yet another hearing on Capitol Hill. This time, the proverbial fireworks were at the House Oversight and Reform Committee as Postmaster General Louis DeJoy answered questions about his troubled tenure there. Unfortunately, President Biden can't just fire the trump appointee who just last week said his plan was to slow down first class mail delivery and raise prices what yeah the power to fire him rests with the postal services board of governors so as the hearing was happening the white house announced that the president had nominated three people to fill three of the four open slots on that board two of them are democrats and the third is a voting rights advocate those nominees must get senate confirmation And then a majority of the board can replace the postmaster general. Tax records that former President Donald Trump tried to keep secret for years are now in the hands of the New York District Attorney Cy Vance. Prosecutors obtained the records on Monday, according to a source, just hours after the Supreme Court denied Trump's last-ditch effort to keep the records private. Oh, to be a fly on the wall in that room. Stay tuned. And there's more news. The House passed the Equality Act today. The vote was 223 to 206, and the Equality Act will now prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The legislation was passed by the House in 2019, but blocked in the Republican-led Senate. This time, though, Democrats control the White House, the House and the Senate. President Biden has signaled his support for the measure, but it still faces an uphill battle in the Senate where it will need 60 votes to break a legislative filibuster unless they do away with the filibuster. But some events of the day leading up to the vote were kind of disturbing. In the House of Representatives, freshman congressman Marie Newman of Illinois and Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia both have offices in the Longworth office building right across the hall from each other. Well, Marie Newman, who's a wonderful progressive, she has a transgender daughter. So to honor her daughter and the Equality Act, Congresswoman Newman placed a flag, a pink, blue, and white flag, outside of her office in support of the legislation. Marjorie Taylor Greene who decried the bill, responded by putting up a sign outside of her office saying, quote, there are two genders, male and female. Trust the science. Lovely, right? Marie Newman put a video of her placing the flag up on Facebook, who then deleted it and called it hate speak. They later apologized and and restored the video, but the damage was already done, And then Marjorie Taylor Greene goes to the floor of the house and actually said this.
5: I'd like to point out to my Democrat colleagues that there is no Republican member of Congress that condones the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. I was also a victim in this chamber when it happened, and we are very offended at your constant attacks on us for claiming we had anything to do with it. So that needs to stop. I'd also like to address the entire 117th Congress and say that the Equality Act is not about stopping discrimination. It's about causing discrimination against women and religious freedoms. I would like to motion to adjourn, Madam Speaker. Oh, my
1: God.
0: The question is on the motion to adjourn.
1: Okay, so, yes, so that's Marjorie Taylor Greene. And if you thought she was the most heinous member of Congress on Thursday, well, we may have to argue that with you and put her in a cage match with Rand Paul, who in the confirmation hearing for Vivek Murthy to be the new Surgeon General, and Dr. Rachel Levine to be the Assistant Secretary for Health, Rand Paul went on a rant about transgender children. You should know that he was sitting directly across from Dr. Rachel Levine, who happens to be transgender, and if confirmed, would be the, the first out transgender person to be Senate confirmed for a federal position. I'm warning you, be prepared for Rand Paul's ugliness.
2: Genital mutilation has been nearly universally condemned. Genital mutilation has been condemned by the WHO, the United Nations Children's Fund, the United Nations Population Fund. According to the WHO, genital mutilation is recognized internationally as a violation of human rights. Genital mutilation is considered particularly egregious because as the WHO notes, it is nearly always carried out on minors and is a violation of the rights of children. Most genital mutilation is not typically performed by force, but as WHO notes that by social convention, social norm, the social pressure to conform, to do what others do and have been doing as well as the need to be accepted socially in the future He just keeps going. American culture, is now normalizing the idea that minors can be given hormones to prevent their biological development of their secondary sexual characteristics. Dr. Levine, you have supported both allowing minors to be given hormone blockers to prevent them from going through puberty, as well as surgical destruction of a minor's genitalia. Like surgical mutilation, hormonal interruption of puberty can permanently alter and prevent secondary sexual characteristics. The American College of Pediatricians reports that 80 to 95 percent. Senator, is there a question here? you. You know what?
1: You get the idea of what he's saying. Now, let me share with you how she responded. And I give Dr. Rachel Levine all the credit in the world for not telling him what I'm thinking.
2: Senator, uh, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field. Uh, and if confirmed to the position of Assistant Secretary of Health, I would certainly be pleased to come to your office and talk with you and your staff about the standards of care and the complexity of this field. Let it go into the record that the witness refused to answer the question.
1: There really are no words. Rand Paul is just despicable. Ugh. All right, I need a shower, or at least a break. So we'll take a very quick timeout and come back on the other side with a Green News report, and then we're going to talk about you never forgetting your first. Stick around. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast.
0: Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via brandblog.com slash donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
1: Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host today, Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com. And I tell you all that because I want to invite you to check out what I do. I mean, you hear me in here for Brad and Desi. My show's a little different. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. And I'm on five days a week. I do a live show at 5 Eastern each day, but then each show is available as a podcast. It's also on video. There's so many ways to listen or watch, and there's no paywall. So if you like what you hear, I hope you'll support what I do, but um, go check it out. Okay, NicoleSandler.com. So Brad and Desi are out today. It's Desi's birthday. But they did leave us with a new Green News report. So take it away, Desi and Brad.
3: I'm committed to working cooperatively with all stakeholders and all of Congress to strike the right balance going forward. Historic Interior Department nominee pledges balance amid GOP attacks. New Postal Service trucks won't be all electric. Texas deregulation cost electricity customers $28 billion,
4: plus... Data show the pollutants include tens of thousands of pounds of benzene, carbon monoxide, hydrogen sulfide,
0: and sulfur dioxide.
3: Refineries legally released tons of toxic pollution during Texas power crisis.
0: Someone should make a law about that. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman.
3: And I'm Desi Doyen.
0: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment.
2: Did Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 10 years ago at the tender age of 21
0: parachute into the state of Texas to put up windmills under cover of night? Probably. Or she and Al Gore driving through the Permian Basin, secretly unplugging all the rigs? How stupid does Tucker think his audience is? How much time you got, Chris Hayes? This is your Green News Report.
3: Gonna soak up the sun.
0: Okay, Desi Doyen, I hate to say it, but... More trouble in Texas.
3: Oh, indeed, there is. First, another bomb train explosion, this time in Cameron, Texas, near Austin. The good news is that no one was injured. An 18-wheeler hit a train carrying gasoline, coal, and petroleum products on Tuesday, triggering a huge explosion and fire that officials say will take days to put out. Also in Texas, more fallout from the Texas power crisis and water crisis, as six members of ERCOT, the Texas electric grid operator, resigned this week over the catastrophic, deadly failure of the state's unregulated power system in a winter storm that left millions without heat or electricity.
0: Sure, fire the board members who were... Following Texas law.
3: Exactly. Critics say that state Republican lawmakers are responsible. They knew what kind of system they had and they embraced it until it failed.
0: You got to blame someone. Other than yourself, if you're a Republican.
3: Plus, a Wall Street Journal analysis has found that thanks to deregulation and privatization of the state's electricity market, Texans have actually paid $28 billion more for their electricity since 2004 than they would have otherwise under a traditional
0: regulated utility structure. Free market, baby free market for suckers.
3: And adding insult to injury, the Texas crisis also led to more air pollution. Refineries and petrochemical plants scrambled to shut production during the sub-freezing weather, forcing them to flare or burn off gases to prevent damage to the units. According to state data, the five largest oil refineries in the U.S. legally released toxic benzene, carbon monoxide, hydrogen sulfide, and sulfur dioxide into the air, generating clouds of pollution pollution across the East Texas region. Environmental groups say the pollution releases could have been prevented if the plants had been
0: winterized. Hey, it wouldn't be Texas if they weren't allowed to pollute.
3: President Joe Biden's nominee for Interior Secretary, Democratic Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico, appears to be headed to confirmation as the first ever Native American Cabinet Secretary in U.S. history. In Senate confirmation hearings this week, fossil fuel funded Republicans labeled Holland a radical, over her pledges to protect tribal communities and public lands and over her opposition to controversial pipelines on native lands. They even lectured Holland about the importance of science in (laughs) decision-making after spending the last four years backing the Trump administration's war on science and data. Holland said that fossil energy plays a major role in America and repeatedly emphasized that if confirmed, she will work to bridge party lines to find balance with Biden's climate agenda. As part of this balance, the department has a role in harnessing the clean energy potential of our public lands and to create jobs and a new economic opportunities. The president's agenda demonstrates that America's public lands can and should be engines for clean energy production." Also in the nation's capital, the Biden Department of Energy is moving ahead with a sweeping review of Trump administration energy rules, including a review of several of the Trump administration's most controversial moves in preparation for a possible reversal of policies that weakened energy and water efficiency regulations for light bulbs, showerheads, dishwashers, and more.
0: God, that was a dumb administration.
3: Finally, the US Postal Service has unveiled a futuristic design for new New postal trucks. But U.S. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy told lawmakers this week that the service would only commit to making 10 percent of more than 100,000 new postal trucks. All electric, citing the cost. All electric delivery trucks would save the Postal Service more than $100 million a year in gasoline costs alone. DeJoy's move seems to defy President Biden's pledge to replace the U.S. government's fleet with all electric vehicles.
0: What about his pledge to replace Louis DeJoy? Hope that's coming soon. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Happy birthday. Thank you. This has been your Green News Report.
1: And that's the latest Green News Report heard here on the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today. Stick around. In a moment, we'll be back with a different kind of look at a president. We'll speak with Alexis Coe. She's a historian and author of the book called "You Never Forget Your First: A Biography of George Washington." Don't go away. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. <laughs>
3: Hey, this is Desi Doyan of the Green News Report and the Bradcast. Did you know that you can help us stay completely independent over your public airwaves by signing up for a monthly subscription of any amount you like? Yes! Just go to bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate.
1: And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, and I'm really excited to share our next guest with you. Because every now and then you need to take stock of where you are in history, but look back at those who came before you. So today we welcome a historian and author to the broadcast. Alexis Coe is her name, and she's the author of a book called You Never Forget Your First. And and I love the title. And I was and it, because it's about George Washington, the first president of the United States. You are a presidential historian. Yes,
5: I am. I am. I am. I have a background in political um, history and I focus on the presidency.
1: Nice. In the intro to the book, you take issue with how presidential biographers typically write about their subjects. You noted that you are the first female presidential biographer, as far as we know. Um, Are you for sure the first female presidential biographer?
5: Of of Washington, yes. I mean, I was in a state of belief when I realized that, too. It was years into writing this book, and I knew there was a male skew, but I had no idea that it was literally all men and, and so i in the state of disbelief in emailed um mount vernon which is george washington's historic home they in turn said oh yeah i think you're right so then they emailed um the george washington papers at the university of virginia which i was already in conversation with and so we all realized yes yeah, um, it's not something to be that proud of. <laughs> no. We, we really, um, you know, it's it's an unfortunate thing, not because, oh, we just need to, like, check boxes, but because we need a diversity of voices in order to just have a diversity of interpretations. We look at these things in the archives, and, you know, you need to look at them differently to get new understanding.
1: Uh, Most definitely, because times change and attitudes change. And I just got to share this with you. Um, Gloria in the YouTube chat room said new book title. Let's forget your 45th. Just saying. Um. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I have heard that one. (laughs) Have you? Okay, so nothing is new under the sun. Um, But so your book, you first in the intro, you take apart, you know, the very dry way that uh, presidential biographies have been written in the past. And I get you when I was in grade school. I remember, you know, it's, we had to do a book report on a biography, and I, it was like, ugh, really? And it was a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt that captured my interest that was written, um, interestingly enough, for a fourth grader. Um, but, but you t- point out that the... The main biographies, the ones we know of about Washington, and there have been many, all seem to take this very masculine view. Like they they feel like it's their responsibility to point out that George Washington was a manly man, that he was very tall, had large limbs, had, I, I mean, big hands and big feet. Were they trying to say that he's got a, that he's well endowed? I, I caught myself there.
5: It, it was a, it was a lot. It was, I mean, it seemed like you know, his height was important. Some of these things were important, but knowing that he had, you know, big hands and big feet, and the way that his thighs gripped a saddle, and you know, this stuff that was sort of devolve into romance, yeah, novels speak. Um, it struck me as really odd and then most disappointing, we didn't get any closer to Washington. If anything, it was hero worship and so it sort of got us farther away and it was at odds with their stated goals, these biographers. They said, you know, we want to break him out. We want him to feel real. Well, then let's get closer to him, not like genuflect in his in his direction. It just doesn't do anything for us. If we want to talk about his body Let's not talk, tw- you know, let's not spend 20 pages talking about his size. Tell me about how his body survived so many things. That's what I want to know. Um, and so I do just feel like there's this emphasis on things that aren't totally relevant. So I don't know why these- we need like a hundred more pages in a book for those. But, right. You know?
1: Right. And you deconstruct a lot of the myths, like the myths we grew up with about his wooden teeth. And actually the reality is and and when you think about the idea of wood in your mouth for teeth, you point out some things like that would be disgusting,
5: like absolutely disgusting. But the reality is even more gross. Right? I mean, it just it wouldn't make any sense. Anyone who has ever handled a piece of wood in their life knows that. Like rule number one is you do not get it wet. Yeah. Um, nothing good <laughs> comes from that. And um, we would have heard about it. You know, the the founding fathers talk about each other. They were gossipy. They were not nice at times. And if he had crumbling wood coming out of his mouth and the kind of breath that would lead to, we would know about it. Abigail Adams, John Adams, there would have been a hundred letters about it. Um, But then the question is, okay, so we know he didn't have wooden teeth. Where's the next step? We don't have it, right? Because we're told... We're, we're we're sort of taught not to think critically about our presidents, and the danger there is I'm not saying there is this extreme, right, that we can only cancel someone or celebrate them, and that's just not how life works. It's no. not how history works, and so we need to ask the follow-up question, which is, okay, not would— so what are they made of? Right. Um, the best, and, and and we need to ask those questions. And if we're not asking them, we need to then be told that by historians like myself. So at best, you know, he was a poacher. We've got walrus and, and other ivory. But... Um, you know, there were the teeth of enslaved people oh, in God. his dentures. And that's not, oh. you know, and, and it's, it's a lot to take in. And we have to remember, this is not unique to Washington. This is what people of means did at that time. What is unique to Washington, and this is an important part of the story, as is every single part, um, that Washington owned hundreds of people And decided, well, my dentist is putting out ads, which I, you know, quote in the book and I I saw in the archives. He's putting out ads um, for these teeth and he's paying top dollar. I own all these people. Why don't I offer them under market value? And then they will give me their teeth. And there have been people who have said, um, well, at least he paid them. Well, let's think about this. Yeah we have other examples of this so let's get away from the teeth. let's okay. get away from all that let's go to what um the enslaved people had some of sunday off
1: so, some um, of sunday be, off okay
5: some of sunday off right they yeah. would go to some sort of religious ceremony which is really important um and you know it was a part of of submission uh to christianity it was a part of the system and um If Washington, though, had someone over, he would sometimes make them, like, race across the Potomac um, or something like that. But um, he also got word that they were fishing because they, as many people who visited Mount Vernon commented, his enslaved people were sort of, you know, in tatters and they were very thin and they, they were malnourished. You know, there was... This is how, um, you know, this is the institution of slavery for for, for most people, mm-hmm. the vast majority. So Washington learns that they're getting a pretty good price for the fish that they're selling. So then they're no longer able to sell it. That is then a part of their job. Wow. So I think that, you know, sometimes talking about the teeth can be, I mean, it is and should be something that makes us all uncomfortable. But um, it becomes divisive. So we need to then look at. The larger story, so we can look at the fish, we can look at a lot of other things, and we can get a sense of 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 who this person was, which was, um, you know, a walking hypocrisy like a lot of us and lot- like our country, and that's oh. that's not. Um, that's not a bad statement about us. It's, it's, we weren't alive then we're not related to him, but it is if we don't try to do better.
1: Right. So you're not passing judgment on him one way or the other. You're simply saying this is how things were back then. This is how this man was. Um, and, and what we've gotten throughout the years in terms of official presidential biographies, for the most part, have whitewashed them. Uh, interesting choice of words, but it fits that in that you know they tell us what you know the stories that have been passed down, for instance, the chopping down the cherry tree and I cannot tell a lie is a lie,
5: right I mean it's absolutely he- a lie, absolutely a lie, and it's unfortunate because I mean it's sort of a boring lie, right, but also <laughs> um it denies Washington some very necessary credit that we should be giving him, you know he's always made into this military man, um but he Really did incredible things during the war, like be a spymaster, which he loved. A spymaster? He was excellent at it, a spymaster. He loved it, he was excellent at it. So if he couldn't tell a lie... That would have been pretty bad for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I, I mean, you it would did. It bad for spying. Right. And, and, you you know, you
1: point out a lot of other facts that, I, for instance, I never knew. And I, then again, I never studied Washington to this extent. Alexis Coe, uh, author of You Never Forget Your First. Um, for instance, the father of our country was never a biological father, which was a good thing because he was the one, the first president after the monarchy when they were trying to show... That we can have a leader who's not a king and there is no, you know, bloodline for this uh, power to be passed down. Something maybe Donald Trump should read your book. But um, so maybe it made things a little easier in that he did not have any biological children. Um, Was there talk about why he didn't have biological children? He had stepchildren. His wife was a widow, I believe. Right, Martha?
5: Yes, Martha Washington came with two children. Um, They met in their late 20s, and her children were two and four. Mm. And this was not unusual at all in early America. Um, You know, this was uh, James Madison married someone with children. This was a good thing for them. They didn't care as much about this biological connection. We do. Mm. Um, We do for a couple different reasons. One, um, it proves some sort of virility some sort of masculinity. um, And that's, as we've established, pretty important, it seems to people. Um, But it was really important to early Americans that he didn't have children, because it meant he wouldn't be a king. No one knew what this was going to look like. And, um, you know, they didn't want him surrounded by children that he would put in as various advisors. Um, And so, you know, in fact, he, he his his nephew, he wouldn't give a job. He wouldn't appoint him to be a judge. James uh, or John Adams would later appoint this man, Bushrod Washington, to the Supreme Court. So it's wow. not like he was unworthy of a high post. But Washington didn't like the optics of it. And they said, you know, get some more experience, and then we'll see where you're at. You're helped by my name. I mm-hmm. don't need to appoint you to something. Hmm. It's not a good look. Um, and I, so I, I think that we really need to remember— that that
1: was important, particularly now, <laughs> without a doubt
5: bit of a delay. Sorry. Uh, no, it's fine. No, it, okay. no it's, it's oh,
1: good. Okay. sounding fine on this end. I'm sorry if, if you're getting a delay. I, I apologize no, for the no, mess today.
5: Um, so, Alexis, what what
1: what should we know about George Washington other than what I've already asked you that we don't know, that we've been fed, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. a myth about the man that's real that we should know when you look back on history?
5: Absolutely. Well, I feel like since we've talked about slavery, we've sort of got a lot um, out front, and I I think it's important to hold two things at once. I think we should spend a moment talking about um, two really important parts of Washington's presidency that might resonate for us right now, which is um, Washington famously gave up power. And we Mm -hmm. all sort of say that, but we don't really think about it that much. And um, I want to talk about why it was important in early America. We set off an age of revolutions, right? French Revolution, all these other ones that we're, we're pretty familiar with, right? But we were the first. And um, Washington, as soon as we the Battle of Yorktown was won, Washington said, okay, when can I resign? I'm the hmm. general. I didn't plan on running a country. At the time, this was really crazy for people to hear because the world had only known monarchs and dictators. Right. Who had either usurped or or just, you know, uh, sort of gathered a lot of power for themselves at these moments of instability. So they said, OK, sure. And he just kept demanding directions like, do you want a whole ceremony? Do you want a letter? I don't care. Just let me know. I want to be home by Christmas. And that is exactly why the founders wanted him to be president, because they didn't know a lot about the role. It hadn't really been done. So they figured, OK, if, he, if he'll be president, we trust him to figure it out and everyone else will follow his example. So we know we we have a 100 things. So we've got 99 problems. The presidency is not one. Right, right. Right. And then he gave up power again after two terms. And he did so because he was getting up there. And he also, you know, didn't want to be president, but he was getting up there in age. And he said, if I die in office, because we put limits, we said each term should be four years. But in the very beginning, there were not term limits. So it could okay. have gone on four in years, four four years, forever. And he was worried if he died in office, that that would be the impression, that people should be president for life. So that was really important is giving up power. And we had this tradition for 233 years and it gave us moral authority over the world now because no one's ever had that sort of consistency. And at the time it showed the world that we were stability. 10 years after our revolution, George Washington was president. George III was fine. He was going crazy, but he was fine. We didn't catch him. (laughs) Right. Ten years after the French Revolution, as we know, the monarchs lost their heads. Napoleon installed himself. And so I really think that we can't undervalue the peaceful transfer of power. As we know, during the Civil War, there was no Confederate flag in the Capitol. We saw one recently because of the refusal. So I think that is one thing that I think is so important. And then the second, you might be familiar with Washington's farewell address Mm -hmm. when he left office.
1: OK, tell us. Uh, tell us when, what,
5: what. Yeah. So he warned about a lot of things. Um, and, I, you know, this is funny because, you know, I've lived with him now for so many years <laughs> right. and different parts have, have resonated with me. But this has been something that I cannot stop thinking about. He warned us. He said, look, you are we are this infant empire. We're going to be great. We have to be worried about two things. First thing, foreign influence. That's the thing that resonated me with me for uh, quite a few years, which is that, you know, be wary of foreigners who want to give you certain things so that you can get ahead in America. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to help your campaign. They're going to do whatever. The man said this, and he said, you know, you're going to be beholden for them, and it'll be bad for America. That was the thing I used to talk about. Now what I talk about is he, he hated partisanship. He was the only president who did not declare a political party, wow. and he did so because his whole, the whole point was he was supposed to be a unifier. It wasn't, you know, just the people who voted for me. It was everyone. Um, he and and he worried. He worried that if if we only cared about political parties, that we would vote, um, you know, against the interests of the country, yeah, and of our neighbor, <laughs> yeah. And, Here's where it really blew – I mean, this is just going to sound, you know, like a foreign country to you. What he worried was if if parties cared more about maintaining power than they did working with people who they were politically disagreed with in order to make life better for America, to strengthen the economy, to – to ensure the safety and tranquility and happiness. Happiness was a big concept back then, and it meant, a lot of, it meant a lot of things. What we know, security, a lot of important things that I think we've all been sort of missing for the last couple of years. Um, and, and he said, you know, the problem is that they will do whatever it takes to stay in power, and they will basically lose all moral, their moral compass. Because wow. when power is the only thing that matters, it's the only thing that matters. And then we're basically the British. And why did we rebel?
1: Right. Wow. So um, prophetic he was as well. Was he was he psychic in other ways? I mean, he called this one. This is exactly where we are today. And it's it's horrific. Do you imagine uh, proverbially George Washington rolling over in his grave based on current
5: events? Well, you know, it's hard. He, he read some, He read the room in some ways and then he was wrong in other ways. When he annotated and he sort of went back and he edited out things that he thought wouldn't age well from his papers, he 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 thought genocide would go over well of 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 indigenous people. Oh, my God. Right. Right. He wasn't always right. No. But with this, um, I think that he would he he totally saw someone like Trump coming. Um, he, he obviously was worried about political parties, not just so, you know, we can't just say the Republicans, it has not always been the Democrats and Republicans. We right. have had, seen many, um, parties die as a result of this sort of thing. And in fact, Republicans love to say that they're the party of Lincoln That was like, <laughs> no. for four months. Right. <laughs> well, he it, was we're- the party. He was the Whig party. The Whig party died. And then he was like, okay, I guess I'm going to go this way. And he just you know, decided to be a Republican, it doesn't, it, it was not... It is not, not your, it's not your
1: father's Republican Party that, that Lincoln belonged no, to. No, I mean...
5: And in fact... I do mean, think like anyone can
1: say that. No, and in fact, Alexis, you you are a historian, so, I mean, I think and I'm not a historian let me tell you that I'm a former rock and roll disc jockey turned talk show host but um this seems like we are nearing the end of the Republican Party as we know it now it looks like there's going to be a split if it hasn't already happened might uh, and there there is talk of a new party forming whether it's the Trump party or this breakout from the never trumpers do you see that change coming i
5: did not um I didn't want to live in the present as much as I've had to. I, right, so yes. I am not a political scientist, but I do see the markings of a party going down, um, and I think that it was avoidable and possibly still is with some really aggressive action, but um, that has not been taken. And so I think that the problem is with, with you know, as Washington rightly predicted, that when you serve power and you serve a demigod above all else, and you lose. Any sort of connection to the Constitution or your obligations to your constituents, you know, or or just basic human decency. You know, we have Ted Cruz leaving um, to go to, I mean, just unbelievable. Um, What could I be doing? Anything, literally anything freezing in your home. And I think when we don't have that, um, you know, Washington was rich. All these guys were rich, but they had... They suffered. They made a point of it. They knew how important it was for people to see that. And they also they, they took pride in it. This is not um, this is not something we see now. So I feel like if it happens, it needs to happen in America. It's probably better off. Mm. Um, they They need to figure out who who they are.
1: We all do. I
5: mean, we 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 all do, which is not to say any of the parties, you know, you you said earlier, you know, should we judge these people? No, it's not about that. You know, and I bring up, I brought up the Confederates earlier because, you know, you can get rid of those statues. You can get rid of the monuments of basically everyone except, um, you know, Robert E. Lee. And we're probably going to forget them. We're not going to remember their names because they didn't do anything else except create, um, you know, participate in a treasonous act. Um, that almost destroyed the union. However, you cannot cancel George Washington, and therefore, we're not judging him. We're not choosing. We're not. We're not being assigned. Um, you know him as a role model because we don't live in a socialist or a dictator or a communist society. We're allowed to make these choices for ourselves. We're allowed so to speak honestly
1: about these people and call them out for who they were. And in fact, you do get into great detail. Um, uh, Regarding George Washington's owning of other human beings, his owning of slaves. And, you know, in the whitewashing history books, they talk about, well, in his will, he freed them all. But you point out that. Yeah, he did, but not until his wife was done with them. But you can't also look at it in today's standards. And again, I'm not passing. I, I am passing judgment in my mind, but I'm trying not to because it was a different time then. And this is who they were and who he was. And I guess that was looked upon charitably that he did free the slaves after his wife died.
5: I guess well, so, so. So this is what's interesting. So so what you're saying is true. You know, I'm not saying you can judge them. You can have sort of whatever feeling you want about the founders, but we've got to start out. You know, what the conversation has to be based on the archives, on primary sources, on things that actually happened, not things that we want to believe happened mm-hmm. or things we don't want to dwell on. Right. That that's fine. You know, we just we need. This is why. He's in our textbooks. So, so the, the story goes, the sort of celebratory story goes, um, that Washington had a change of heart during the Revolution and that he really, like, wanted to emancipate his slaves but just couldn't. And so what he did was he freed them outright in his will. Um, and, you know, wonderful George Washington. So the real story is that Washington, through the Revolution, did become exposed to people who weren't just plantation you know, owners who enslaved people from Virginia. He got to know lots of people, including the Marquis de Lafayette, everyone's favorite from Hamilton, the musical. Right. And Lafayette spent a really long time writing letters to Washington saying things like, OK, look, I'll go half seas with you on um some land and we can move your enslaved people there and they can b- basically he wanted them to do tenant farming which we know wouldn't work later but you know bless his heart he's trying and washington would say like you're so sweet would say like this says so much about you as a person let's talk when I see you and that means you know Lafayette's coming over from France he's in prison during the um the revolution there so like that's you know we'll talk about in seven years (laughs) and meanwhile is doing literally nothing to change his reality which he could have because there were laws in place in Virginia where you paid a fee you ensured that you would give um a pension or or some sort of uh you know Stipend if you you know an enslaved person had been injured in your service, mm-hmm. which a lot of his had, um, and and he chose not to. And he would say things like, "Well, you know, I'm waiting for a law." So that's just there were a lot of excuses. And then a month or, or two months before he died, he sat down. He he had a, a a will that a lawyer had put together that Martha knew about, and then he wrote his own, sort of ill advice, but he did it, and he said. I'm going to free one man outright, because the word outright, if you define it, it means without condition, right away. Uh One man outright named William Lee, Billy Lee, and he was like his right-hand man. So he was free the day Washington died, and he said the rest of the people, so 122 others, not an insignificant number of people, uh, will be of use to Martha on the property. For the duration of her life, or unless she chooses to. Now, this was really interesting. I'm not sure Martha knew about this because huh. the night before he died, you cannot make this up. The the night before he died, he he's like sick in bed and he goes, "Martha, bring me th- these two wills." And he looks at them and he's like, "Burn this one." And then there's some sort of conversation, and she does. But I don't think she really knew because Martha, you can read any of her letters; she is very clear. She where Washington knew these optics. Would not look good. He understood the world was turning. He understood that he needed um, to ensure his legacy, and he did know that. He thought that it would still be a good thing to say that there had, you know, you had been genocidal against indigenous people. But mm-hmm. he did know that slavery was changing, um, and so he wanted that. So Martha, the whole thing was she could use them, you know, until then or. At her discretion, Martha would write things like black people were of a different nature. They were just, you know, fundamentally bad, Um, you know, all sorts of things. So there was absolutely no worry for him that she would do this early. But... He did know that if she worried about her life, she would. And that's what happened. They knew this. They got the will because he had it published that would help his legacy. And she was worried they were going to murder her. Wow. And they probably
1: wow. would. Wow. So um, they were free a year later. They were free a year later. There are tons of stories like that in the book, You Never Forget Your First Biography of George Washington by Alexis Coe. It's a great read, it's history but presented in a contemporary way. Ah, And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler filling in for Brad and Desi today who are, I hope celebrating Desi's birthday. I'll be back again tomorrow. Give them a long weekend. In the meantime, be diligent, stay safe, wear your mask, social distance. That stuff's going to be with us for a long time. I'm Nicole Sandler. Come find me at NicoleSandler.com. Check out my show anytime. There's no paywall there. Just explore and listen and uh, try it. You'll like it. I'll leave you with the words of Brad Friedman and echo the sentiment. Good luck world.